I'm Edna Sessian, the director of the Helix Center, and this is a joint program we are doing with the uh, SciArt. Um, I want to first start by thanking all the participants for this roundtable, some of whom have come from uh, far away. And uh, I very much appreciate their willingness to come and participate in this two and a half day event. I also want to thank the Helix executive board that has been involved with the planning and the uh, associate director of the center, Robert Panzer. Uh, finally, uh, I want to thank uh, Julia Bontaine, who has been instrumental in uh, first having the idea of this roundtable and then being extremely active in organizing it. It has allowed for a very uh, seamless uh, relationship between the two organizations, and I'm very thankful to her. I will now pass the mic to her. Thank you. Ed, um, ooh, loud. Uh, so as Ed mentioned, this has been an amazing collaboration between SciArt Center and the Helix Center. Um, my name is Julia Buntain. I'm the founding director of SciArt Center, and I'm so thrilled that you can all be here tonight uh, to join us in this conference of conversation. Uh, we have digital um, attendees as well, so welcome if you hear us on the live stream. Um, tonight we're going to be talking, and for the rest of the weekend, about art, science, culture, education, technology, and our collective futures. So I had the idea for this weekend about a year and a half ago after attending a conference where uh, all the discussion was very wonderful, but there was very little time for kind of free, spontaneous conversation. So what we're going to do here this weekend is a little bit different than your typical conference, as you may have gathered. Um, with the goal of evolving a collective conversation over the course of three days, we are uh, cutting out pre-scripted presentations entirely, and we've invited 36 innovative leaders in the art, science, technology, and education realms to share their current work, talk about the problems they're facing, solutions they may have come up with to common problems, um, talk about issues big and small, talk about where we are and where we want to be, not only in the worlds of art and science, but at the points where they converge. So importantly, and I want to emphasize this from the start, the interaction between art and science and technology in our culture, industry, and education is well established. Uh, we're not here to justify that interaction. Uh, it, I think it speaks for itself. Rather, we're going to, over the course of six roundtable discussions on three central topics, be talking about questions like, what are the potentials of science art collaboration beyond art about science? How do we build models for education in the 21st century? How do we repair and build upon the multi-directional relationship between art, science, and society? So I'm so grateful to have found the perfect partner for this type of conversation, the Helix Center. The Helix Center's motto encourages us to engage in an unhurried search for wisdom. And I think it's high time, guided by wisdom, to really evolve these conversations that we're going to have to the next level. So I hope you enjoy this evening and join us for the rest of the weekend. We will now, or we have invited up our roundtable participants. They're already there. Um, and I will introduce them to you all. Um, but yes, thank you for being here. OK. Well,
And please raise your hand when I say your name so everyone can know who you are. We have Mark Rosen, who is a professor of physics at Pratt, and he's also the director of guerrilla science. Shane Mayak is the director of the LIGO project. Tyler Volk is a professor of biology and environmental studies at NYU and is also an author. Noah Hutton is the director of The Beautiful Brain and is also a filmmaker. Jamie McRae is a conservation scientist and a dancer. And Monica Aiello is the co-founder of Eurekas and also an artist. Um, so this first panel, as you guys know from your handout, is all about science art collaboration. So we're just going to jump in here with some questions about what is the nature of art science collaboration? Who's the owner of a collaborative project? Do, does art need to influence science as science influences art? Those were the, those were the questions. <laughs> Great. So you're going to answer them all for us now. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll do each take turns. And then, yeah. Oh, geez, I, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I, I, I feel like the place where I always like to start asking these, these are really big questions, but I am curious to hear from all of y'all what, what doesn't, what isn't good in collaboration? I think starting from a place of like criticizing what can go wrong uh, from a collaboration, because I've just been, I've been to too many events like this, and to too many I've seen too many collaborations happen, where it almost seems like when a science and an artist come together, magically we receive less than the sum of the parts somehow. Both things get diluted, and I'm I'm being negative to start here, but yeah, but like both things get diluted, the scientist ends up feeling like they have to dumb down their work to to reach somewhere in the muddy middle, and the artist feels like they have to give a, 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 a sketchbook account of the science or somehow just give an aesthetic rendition of scientific objects. And as a result, I'm not sure what's added. I would, I'm always interested in interdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity that ends up feeling like it's more than the sum of its parts. And I just wonder if you guys feel the same. Or if you've seen anything, if you've seen what I'm describing happen, where there's a, dil a diluting process to this kind of muddy middle ground. Well, I think that that happens to some degree in any interdisciplinary collaboration. I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> Why? Uh, Is my mic not on? Um, there you go. Okay. So what I was saying is I think that can happen in any interdisciplinary collaboration. And I think part of the problem is a lack of resources to a lot of what we're doing that makes some of the work difficult to sustain and even begin to some degree, even though a lot of us are trying to begin it. Does that make any sense? Right, so you're saying, you're saying this lack of funding creates an environment where it's, it's tough to even get going to a rich level. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you need funding to create um, a rich collaboration. I really like the, the term transdisciplinary. 
because with that, it's not, uh, hey, I'm going to bring my art, and you're going to bring your science, and we're going to walk along to parallel paths together for some time, and then we're going to split up. But where we're going to work together and build a collaboration. So those how and why are you going to do that? Um, in because the grand scheme of because in the priorities. grand scheme of things, the questions that we're trying to answer now are so large that one discipline can't can't handle it. No, absolutely. So, right. So so that's why we're gonna. That's why we want to collaborate together. So now we're going to have to take time to build relationships, and you know that is. I mean, time is a resource that that can be short. But it's not necessarily a resource that you always need a grant for. So if you have trust, if you have um, a scientist sharing their process and their knowledge, and an artist sharing their process and their knowledge, so one is not more than the other, I feel like you can create a space where both of them are creating something wholly new that you wouldn't be able to get alone. Yeah, I agree with all of those things, but I do think it's a bit idealistic. Not, And I don't want to focus this whole discussion on funding, because I think that would not be beneficial, but <laughs> that in the grand scheme of priorities that all of us in this room have, it's very, very difficult to support rich, meaningful work without having a financial structure to do so. I yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I, wouldn't, I would frame it slightly differently and say that... That's um, probably useful. Thank you. <laughs> I would say that the incentive structure is such that... Um, in science, there is a wealth of funding and there is a professionalization of sharing your work. It is part of your formal duties as a scientist to disseminate your work into the wider community, whether people actually do that in practice or not is by the by. Whereas for artists, as a kind of early or mid-career artist, there isn't a formal infrastructure that will pay you to do that work. And so when the norms of the scientific community are brought into an artistic realm and people ask you to, as an artist, do things for free because it's assumed it's part of your professional work, then it's, there's an inequity in that situation. And so there's a disincentive for the artist to, um, I guess, to contribute at the same level as the scientist. And that is fundamentally, I think, tied to funding and uh, kind of the resources that are tied with those professions. And there's, can I keep speaking or am I monopolizing? <laughs> well, so I, I think that's true. I think like there's an inequity in resources and that creates a incentive structure that's imbalanced. And yeah. so- I really like the term incentivization too. I think that's like an excellent way to put it. So, so I think that you'll find because of that financial incentive structure, there are artists that need money and they are going to basically be chasing money. 
they, they may, in the worst case scenario that maybe Noah is referring to, they may try and retrofit their work to access a pot of science funding to allow them to do a project they want to, in, in, in a worst case scenario. Um, does, does that make sense? I'm seeing blank faces. But, but it's also a problem on the science side, right, where there isn't any or very little incentivization in academia, in science, to be part of these sorts of things. You don't get any, if, if you're trying to get to the next level in academia, you don't get points for working with an artist. You don't. So it's not part of the incentivization structure. But I feel like we're trying to fix that. Um, and NSF, broader impacts, right? There's, there are line items in grants that you can use. Now, you need to use them creatively. Um, but that can be a way uh, for, for you to have those broader impacts. And that is a structure that has been set up that we can make use of now. Always, it's like, let's, how do we do this creatively? How do I not say in my broader impacts that I'm going to you know, give a talk to, to some school children again and have that be the way that I'm disseminating the information? So, uh, so let, me, let me bring up an example because Noah was asking something about uh, you know, difficulties in collaboration and the funding. But let me, so, so something that really struck me, and maybe it relates to a lot of the audience, if you saw Al Gore's original movie, the original movie, not the newest one, but The, the Inconvenient Truth, mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of people saw that. So that really struck me. As, you know, I'm a scientist, uh, do work on climate and the carbon cycle you know, primarily, but I'm interested in levels of organization and pattern formation on different scales. And I, 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 I love art and um, working with artists when I can. But that particular movie was very popular. You know, and it, and it, and it had, uh, it struck, it, it changed, you know, got people uh, waking up to issues about global warming. I don't think they covered the carbon cycle quite as well as I would have liked. Uh, <laughs> Not how you would have done it. Uh, of course but, they did. <laughs> um, but, but it really struck me that there was a collaboration, you know, if we include filmmaking as art, as the artist, right? And it struck me, so okay with that, and it struck me is that you know, Gore had this PowerPoint that he was going around and giving talks with and he had developed over a series of time. But how much more powerful that was when the artists, when the professional filmmakers came in and, and thought about scripting that in a certain kind of way. And it still had a certain Al Gore on stage with his PowerPoint, a little bit aspect of it, but then it had all these other things that were coming in that were, I just, I just was really blown away at the skillfulness of the artists that were coming onto that situation in which, and where the science was probably no more detailed than it had been. I mean, I'm sure there were some changes. I don't know what the original PowerPoint was, but that really struck me as, as a, um, a great example of of the kind of communication that could happen to millions where the scientist is going to, you know, you know if, I, if I write books and they sell them the thousands, let's Good say, that. right, that's not reaching, wow. you know, the millions that I think is, that are needed to be reached 
in, with the problems, with the global problems that are going on and the, the, the amount of ignorance in the United States scientifically that happens, the, the amount that, that needs to be changed is so vast. So to, to me that kind of thing, is uh, the, the Gore film as an example is important. And there's been a lot of environmental films now about, about, about fish, about ice, about, I mean, it's, it's almost like a, a genre that's, that's coming out as a result. So I'm just putting that out as a, an example of something that uh, uh, struck me as a particularly powerful uh, instance of success. Good. That's a positive example. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what, I mean, so I guess, I guess, you know, how, how can more of that happen? How can the funding for more of that happen? Right. I, 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 yeah, I mean, I think, I don't, I'm going to just be really brief because you no mentioned, worries. but I don't think that any of this should be taken as negative. I think that particularly a group like this should be thinking about the barriers. And I think one barrier is how do you get people to be really invested in these collaborations? It's a huge barrier. And if we don't think about it, everybody in this room, we're not doing our jobs. Well, I would yep. agree with that too, because I have to say, just being invited to do something like this is so exciting because when we started doing art and science at programming, artwork, engagement activities 15 years ago, people's eyes would glass over. They would ask us why. And we spent most of our early part of our careers just convincing people of the relevancy of this conversation. So assuming that most people in this room are interested in the topic, then I do think bringing up challenges and the nitty gritty is a real key aspect. I will say from the artist's perspective, Artists are really used to doing things for no money. Like, we put in all of our sweat equity and our capital up front, and artists that are working with scientists, you know, go out there and try to find a scientist that's going to, like, give us their time so we can ask the crazy questions and come up with things. And then a lot of times the economic reward comes at the end, whether you're you know, selling a piece of artwork or doing an exhibition or for us kind of distilling that into a public engagement forum. But what I find to be the most challenging from my standpoint is institutional barriers. Working with institutions, whether it's art museums, science museums, libraries, schools that don't yet have that framework in place to foster the collaboration or fund it in a way that really makes sense. So you're really largely depending on other people that really have similar objectives and goals in life to give their goodwill. And, and not to switch the subject too much, but I did want to speak to your, your point about transdisciplinary, because that's definitely a word that is very much the language we're trying to foster, because I think that is really the point of what you bring up of when the, the sum of the parts are greater then it's actually transdisciplinary. You're creating something new out of that experience. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And Shane, I just wanted to, to respond to what you said, because I, I do agree that barriers are everywhere, and they're institutional, and they're funding, of course. But I just think that, I think that we are at a place now in this conversation where we can, we can actually maybe say that there's some good collaborations and bad collaborations. Because I think we can get more, we can have more barriers lifted if we articulate better what the, this is all about. Like, what the hell are we doing with transdisciplinary projects? What what can we? Is it about awareness? Like, is it making products like but maybe they're truth? all good? Is I it mean, about communication? I mean, maybe or something they're all I, I, no, I, I disagree. They're not all good. 
I'll give it some. It depends on what the goal is. What? It depends on what the goal is. I agree. I totally. So I think maybe we can we should talk about goals a little bit. Of of what? Why do a collaboration? What's the uh, what's the utmost goal? I think Tyler brings up. Well, great... in that example, right? Yeah. The are the artist comes in as the as the guide to the communication, as the one that's going to translate you know the visuals into uh, into public communication in right. a meaningful way or in a way that's acceptable to the to the to the human brain uh, that fits that sort of fits our our. Uh, our, our, our receptivity. Our, but there, there'd be another aspect of something Julia was asking about the mind of the artist, you know, that, that might have different ideas about something totally. And that, I don't know if that's a different avenue to this transdisciplinarity. I don't, what, what do you mean by transdisciplinarity? <laughs> I, I'm okay with the term. Uh, <laughs> but I'm curious. I think lots of people have that question. Oh, wait, wait, you, you brought it up, right? I, I that, brought it up, is, and is, I is think your Jimmy? definition was very, very succinct. It's I looked it up today. <laughs> <laughs> wait, so what was your definition? I kind of okay, so I looked at transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, right. and um, of course there's argument on what all this means. Yeah. But Transdisciplinary is supposed to be about transcending discipline. Mm. And so that when you have people coming from disciplines together, you're creating something that's new. As opposed to just fusing disciplines or somebody being a scientist and me being an artist and us using our individual practice together. We're actually trying to create something that hasn't existed out of that mix. Hmm. Right, and I think an, a, a good piece a of that... A holistic is part of that. Holistic and, and not having within it that hierarchy that we've been talking about where, you know, where the science is, is bringing in the artists to, to come, right. you know, and, and help with, with the science, but... That's the communication function. Right, and, and I mean, that is a part of it, but as, as an artist... Um, as well as a scientist, as an artist, you are. I, I look for something to to base my my work on. You know, I think both um, disciplines, at their heart, are looking to express a truth of the universe. You know, what is? How are we describing things? What is? You know, how can we distill it? And some of the questioning happens in different ways. But if you you're like, okay, we're working towards this thing to together. Um, how can we meld our, our disciplines in transdisciplinary manner? To get at the truth of the universe? Um, so I feel like that, that's what a lot of scientific questions are, are asking, right? We right? want to explain the, the world that or we specific, live in. Right, a specific, right. specific truth. Yeah, specific, yeah so, so a specific truth, and science frames those with hypotheses, and right. artists have a little different language, but they're both modes of, of questioning what's, what's happening, and so I think you can have those really work well together. May I make what I think is an empirical observation about like the landscape? And that observation is that the majority of the work that I'm familiar with at this interface is from the scientific institution's perspective about building science literacy. So the example you gave, right. the justification for that is building science literacy in the general public. It's easy to understand the functions there. That, that's... Right. Relative. That's how the NSF justifies funding the projects it funds. It's how the Wellcome Trust justifies funding the projects it funds. It's about building science literacy from the scientists, scientific institutions, stakeholder. That's not 
searching for truths in the kind of scientific questioning sense. And in, right. from where I sit, that is a much smaller piece of this intersection. And I think we're going to hear a bit about it tomorrow, like where scientific research meets artistic practice. But I, I think the main part of what I'm familiar with is is not about those questions. It's about kind of some outcome in the broader public. Um, so my question kind of for the more practicing artists is like, what is the like artistic institutional motivation for doing something like creating a nice movie that's trying to tell a scientific literacy story? Or, you know, like your work, Noah, like what is, what is it that you get out of it when the Brain Institute might be getting something about the public understanding the brain. Yeah, that's, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because my, you're, you're saying my goals might be different than theirs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to assume artistic goals are about building scientific literacy in the general public. They might be, but I'm, I don't be. assume it's. So are those not your goals? For... No. <laughs> um, they're, they're part part of my goals. Part of your goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not entirely. Otherwise, I would just be making promotional videos for the Institute. So I, I, I assume a role which is, I think, a little different, which is I play the role of this outside independent critic who comes in to film in interviews and ask questions that they wouldn't be asked in promotional video shoots. And then I go and I ask other projects similar questions to get them talking to each other. And then I, I try to construct a film out of that. that arrives at a truth that is mitigated by my own subjective approach to the story. Mm -hmm. um, it's not inconvenient truth, because right. I'm not trying to get the word out there about this press. I'm actually just trying to show a side of science that doesn't usually get shown, because I believe that a, a, lot, of the, a lot of the projects that I've been uh, shooting with for my film, for example, have I, I feel an ethos that has, has gra gradually shifted more towards Silicon Valley than the, the kind of like original Cajal neuroscientists, let's say. There's kind of this ethos that in the projects that I follow that is super technocratic, is believing that computers are the end-all, uh, be-all for understanding the brain and that simulations will soon reveal the truths on supercomputers. Anyway, that, all those murky issues aside, I, I, I just feel like we're, we're giving a free pass too often that in, gen, in mainstream culture to science, when in fact there's been great criticism of Silicon Valley recently. I just would like some of the same criticism applied hmm. to some aspects of present day science. Be, and and I, I just worry that there's a pervading ethos of science is cool and great and we just need to parse that a little bit because there is kind of scientific, the scientific question in the beginning, the origin story of science is good. There's so much good science going on, but there's also science that's serving other aims in this, in this world. You know, I, I, I just want to mention very quickly, there was a conference that Julie and I were at and there was a presentation by someone from a large arts body in Europe that had just done a collaboration with a drone technology maker. Uh, and, and one of the outputs of this was a big display over a town square in Europe set to music. And then I, I also saw in their slides that they were also like doing Pepsi logos over the Super Bowl and stuff with the drones. And I just thought, like, this is interesting because this is being billed as a really as a great uh, technological collaboration, scientific collaboration. Mm. Uh, 
at the, at the very same moment, it's being just served right into this corporate advertising culture. And so I, I, these are the things I want to parse a little bit about collaboration, because there are many aims. So is this, this, is, this would be another one. If I'm trying, I, I would tend to start looking for types of, a typology of collaboration, sure. right? Maybe this is sort of two sides. That's scientific. good. That's good of you, though. But it's good of you yeah. to do this? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's an yeah. entire field of research a for that. <laughs> yes. Can I ask a question? I, I'm kind of a concrete person, and so I would be interested in hearing from you guys of giving like an analogy of an, a collaboration that you have done within the arts and sciences that maybe was successful or had failure, but kind of epitomized what your role or your goals are with the type of work that you do. So that we have something to kind of ground maybe our conversation you, with. Because what he just described, I would, cla I would, do, I would class as a... Um, the function, the art, the artist as a as a critic almost. Yeah, right. Right. I said right. critic. So, yeah. so rather right. than the communication yeah. and exactly. the Al Gore film, now now it's artist as a critic. Aspects right. of roles, like so that's the role that's being. That's our second. Yeah, but I I think power. they're connected, and of course this is all how we individually define what collaboration is or what we're doing. But I would have never viewed it as a promotional thing. In fact. I think that's what we want to get away from because the PR arms of all the academic institutions, I mean, they're fine, but of course they're serving a purpose. Like we want the yeah. critical eye. We want a secondary view, particularly from someone who can create a narrative that we as scientists aren't that good at creating. I mean, it's absolutely not about being a, a promotional video or, or a promotional arm. But I think if I can just segue into your question, I mean, I think what for LIGO Project, so in case any of you are confused, I'm a scientist by training, and I work at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center during the day, but then I also started a nonprofit that's interested in connecting science, art, and community. Um, and so in that work, in terms of the collaborations that we've had with artists and scientists, I think the ones that have been the most successful, if you will, are those that have focused on the process of science and what, what it means, what science means, what science does, what is the process, what does the scientific, scientific method mean, how does one start from a question and get to an answer, I think those have been the most successful. I would still argue that we've also had a lot of collaborations that have resulted in, you know, pictures of beakers. And I, I mean, I would honestly argue if, if your goal is to communicate something to the public about what science is and what science does, there's some of the public that doesn't ever see a beaker and, you know, maybe that's interesting and informative in some way and that though in a way we're the judge and the jury, maybe we're not, we shouldn't be the judge and the jury and that we have to be sort of open even within our own work and our own collaborations to what the results of that ends up being. Yeah, it seems like you're doing some really cool work with those residency programs that I was looking up the website and what I loved most about it is it seemed like you're giving that space that that enriching space for the collaboration, but 
there's also that practicality aspect too of you know you need this format you need funding you need space exhibition opportunity whatever so that it's a fully thought out collaboration engagement and community outreach scenario yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah mark i have a question for you um guerrilla science is so such like on the ground level of this stuff you're like in the streets with with <laughs> collaborations literally so <laughs> we're asking for a concrete example. I don't necessarily have one because I, I just described what I do and I don't think it's a good example to give, really. Although I, I think I collaborate in some way. But I'm, I'm, my question for you is, what, what, like, what's, the goal, what's the utmost goal of guerrilla science? What's the best thing that you've seen happen? And what, like, what is a really, to, the, the question of like, you know, and then it can be a truth example, which was a great example. But what's your example of something that's happened that's great. There's a project I really like called the Intergalactic Travel Bureau, which is part theatrical production and part exploration of kind of techno-optimistic space science. So, so the project, it's a, it's a pop-up travel agency, and we've worked with Shashama Alod to take over spaces in like the fashion district in New York, and we take over a shop and we set up what looks like a retro-futuristic travel agency where you, you know, I think most of us are old enough to have remembered you used to go to a physical place to buy a ticket somewhere. <laughs> so the aesthetic is kind of think uh, Jetsons meets Mad Men. So you go into this place as a person off the street and it looks like a travel agency. You interact with a travel agent and you'll have a dialogue which will kind of, you know, Noah, what, what kind of vacations do you like? Scuba diving. Okay, scuba diving, great. So, you know, you might be interested in buying a package to go to, like, Io. You know, Io, it's a great destination, got lots of, like, liquid material. You can go scuba diving, you know, you'll, you'll die of hypothermia, but, you know, whatever. It's a little much sulfur. <laughs> um, but so it's this kind of, this world building around future space travel, but it's very heavily drawing on interactive theater and like the dramatization and using science as kind of part of the story, the story world. So kind of almost science fiction and it involves directly both like theatrical elements and actors and life scientists who play the role of these travel agents. So that's a really good project. It's got like, it ticks a lot of boxes. It's like really creative, it's open-ended. Like there's a lot of respect given to both the um, theatrical elements of it as well as the like scientific scientific integrity is key. Like it doesn't work if you get your facts wrong. It doesn't work if you're not like respecting the fact that speed equals distance over time, and that's how long it takes to get to and from I. So that's a really good project. I like that one a lot. Um, and I think it's got a really good element in it, which is like it's it's very democratizing. Like it's accessible to all, it's free, it shows the relevance of science to everyone's life. Like everyone can imagine taking a vacation, like even if no one's ever going to be able to afford to take an Elon Musk shuttle to the moon, like it's easily identifiable. And so I think like in the way that like part of the power of art is um, to like inspire people and to see relevance to their lives, it, it does that quite well. 
And what was the the process behind the the collaboration? So was there a structure that you guys came up with for how the science and artists work together? Yeah. So I, so, so guerrilla science, it's kind of the, the structure of the organization is it's kind of semi curatorial. Um, there's like a core team of about ten people, and a lot of us come from like museum backgrounds or um, I'm trying to remember what it's called in the UK. Um, but it basically like exhibit development backgrounds. And we often come up with like a core idea and then bring together these other people um, from like a scientific discipline or an artistic discipline and have them kind of flesh out and explore that story world. But it's definitely like a guided process. It's not just like a free... And, and we just ran a... a um, a 20-person, eight-week residency program where we didn't provide much structure and we just tried to pair people and gave them resources. And that, the outputs of that were not as, from the public's perspective, as successful. So it's a, it's a guided process. What are the things that you feel like you need to make sure happen for a, a fruitful collaboration? Um, so we're writing a guide to that. So <laughs> <laughs> come back in two years' time, and I will tell you. <laughs> One takeaway? The, the cliff note version? Um, well, so actually, there, there's a reference. Um, I don't know, Julia, can you, if I send you a link, can you tweet it? We, we've written a conference proceedings about this that I'm happy yeah. for Julia to share. Um, so I guess Julia will tweet out some of, like, there were 10 key lessons for how to do the kind of collaborations. I think, I think the one that was, that stuck best was advice for a collaboration is um, don't try and force it. Like, everyone needs to be, want to be in it. Like, if you've got a pot of money and you're a science institution, don't, like, insist you have to spend that money and, like, get an artist and try and shoehorn them into what you want to do. And if you're an artist and you desperately want to do your project, don't just look around for any pot of money that will let you do your project because you might upset the people who fund you if they're a scientist, scientific organization. So that was the, that was the one that stuck most in my mind. Would that start with a, a core idea, such as this intergalactic travel agency? Would be an organizing idea for... Uh -huh. Yeah, there's a theme. There's a theme that guides it. You know, like, mm. you know, like, I, I don't know a ton about how science gallery works. But I think you know they also work off themes, and then there's an open call, and it works off that. But but so what's the feeling you want people to like? What what is the thing you want people to walk out of there? What's the best possible result um, for someone? For because you also mentioned that the other project didn't go so well from the general public's point of view. I'm curious to hear why, if, if you can. But 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 can, can we start with like what to the intergalactic travel agency? Someone walking out of there. What do you? What's is it like a is it for a younger audience to get into a career later on, or is it could be for any age? And what do you want them to feel? Um, so I'll answer this, but then I'm going to stop it because I feel I'm dominating the conversation. <laughs> but but um, you know, so our vision is like to make science for the people. So it's like a democratization of science. It's going back to like there's like an enlightenment ideal that like asking questions in the way that science does is a good in of itself irrespective of the answer. So it's not like techno-optimism, like you're just critical of the world in a like really good rationalist way. So that, that's kind of the vision. 
in terms of the kind of science literacy building elements, it is not about like building work capacity. It's not like there's no economic justification for mm. what we do. It's like very much about the value that science brings as an element of culture. You know, in the same way as you want people reading the great works of literature, you, you know, people should understand that space is varied and interesting. Um, it's about um, what are the four strands of science literacy? Economic development, cultural development. Um, empowerment, it's very important for people to feel empowered in their lives to make the best decisions for them and their community. So I think these are the kind of things that, that matter to me. And I'm pleased trying to give up the floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will take it. Um, I wanted to talk about the Superhero Clubhouse. It is an organization of theater artists and, and scientists that I um, work very closely with. I came upon them through the magic of Google um, because I was looking for a space that provided some structure for um, collaboration over a relatively long time that was focused on asking environmental um, questions. So they have a science and stage fellowship, open call. We want you guys to um, come up with a theater piece about climate change. Now, climate change is, is huge, and we all know the discussions that usually happen f around climate change. They're more like, these are the facts. No, you're lying. No, these are the facts. It, and and it's, not, it's not fruitful. So the idea behind Superhero Clubhouse is to put on performances that have people ask questions. So it's not didactic, um, but it is, is science-based. And in the fellowship, three theater artists, three scientists, four months. Um, and they, the, the structure of the program is basically based on models for building good collaboration. So forming, storming, norming, and performing, if you've heard, heard of that, um, is, is the model. So you, you come together and you spend, you, spend, you spend time together. You build relationships. Um, the scientists, I, like I gave a, a talk about my research on um, sea turtle lighting laws and um, other people gave their uh, talks about their research with genetics um, and, and uh, genetically modified crops. The artists also gave workshops. So we're, we're learning and about each other's disciplines and, and we're creating some, some common language. Um, and so once you're kind of, you know, you have that common language and you're friends with people, you can then start to, to build something together. And you know, lots of brainstorming. What what part of climate change are we gonna are we gonna talk about? Um, and we ended up twenty minute, thirty minute um, uh, theater piece. We've got you know, there's a, there are songs about climate change in there, and um, the the video will be tomorrow if you guys want to check out um, some of that. Um, but in, in that, we've got a piece that has, has a narrative, but is also grounded in, in science. So what 
does the world that we're building look like, like you were, you were saying, and having that be true to the um, facts that we have come up with through scientific research, um, but also having a good uh, artistic value as, as well. But the, the process, you know, it takes a lot of face time, I, I think. Um, and so I really think that the Superhero Clubhouse is, is a space that, that allows people to come together. Um, and you want to come out with something, but what that thing looks like isn't super specified. It's like, you know, we, I, I guess we, we could have done a, a mime piece or something, you know? It, what, what it is, is could, could be different for, for a different group. But having activities that allow you to um, form a, a, a collaboration with another, another person is, is something that I think is really, really important. Um, I also, <laughs> I would also really love to see that, that space become more, more normal. Do you know what I mean? So there are, are more pockets of, okay, let's, let's work together over a long term and let me try and understand what your artistic perspective is. Yeah, because people that. can be so siloed. Uh, exactly. And, and it sounds like you're really, you're like, you want to create a community center almost that can go anywhere. And I think that's what, what good, um, effective collaborations are. They're these micro micro communities mm -hmm. uh shane i have a question for you yes you ran this pretty hip conference space in between uh new school this year what a part of what you did with that was you kind of asked for policy out you asked for outputs takeaways from these working groups what what was your thinking with constructing it that way? What, as an output, why did you want to do it? And what, what's come of it maybe since then, if there's been any reverberations? Yeah, so I mean, my thinking in doing that is because I think it's really important, as this conference does, for those of us working in this space in between, as I referred to it, um, or many of us have referred to it, um, to kind of come together and talk about what we're all doing as individual organizations or practitioners, um, how we can more effectively work together, especially those of us working in New York City, but even beyond that, I just think there's such a big group of us in New York City who are doing things that sound and look alike that my thinking was that we could potentially be a much more powerful voice if we came together and worked together more effectively while still keeping our own individual practices, whatever those are. Um, and so that was the idea. Um, I think what's happened since then is I hope it's spawned a lot of other ideas for bringing this community together more often. Um, there was afterwards a push to kind of form a coalition called a space in between um, which uh, Daniel Cohn who's here somewhere um, spearheaded and exists kind of as a platform and and they continue to meet 
we we were yeah. all continuing to meet for a while, and I think we're I anyway am open to continuing that, and I think um, again that's why I held that conference, and that's something I'm still interested in, potentially even more interested in than doing science and art collaborations because I worry and or potentially I've become really focused on how we take all the work that everybody in this room has already done and all the great things that have come from that and really create a larger voice and a larger impact with it. And I think one of the ways we do that is by really coming together some sort of coalition or force or however you want to label it. Um, and I'd be happy to talk to anybody about moving forward with that. <laughs> I, I, I don't have anything. Do, I feel do like we to... should, do we take yeah, do questions we... from the audience? I, I don't know. Think well, maybe, well maybe Monica could say a few words about the, your educational um, work. Uh, oh, uh, how you conceive of that. I because might be, yeah. Does anybody else work in the K-12 community on the group? I, yep, I, Do you, I'm like, yeah. I work in across k So, yeah, so my, I don't know, my role is kind of weird, and I'm listening to a lot of the conversations, and I think, you know, gosh, we self-initiate almost everything we do. Like, there's no format. We're always out there, you know, thinking of new ideas. Um, in our world, I'm a painter who works with the NASA community um, exploring space science, and I painted Io for the last 12 years, so it's really funny you brought that up, working with Io scientists. <laughs> Io's really cool, guys. Um, and working with David Grinspoon, who's going to be talking tomorrow. Um, but there's been these loose coalitions of the you know artists and space scientists and NASA working together. They have an education and public outreach component to what they do at NASA, although funding's kind of tricky right now. So my role is really as an artist, but also as a distiller, is to work within the space science community and then distill that into engagement programs for K-12, lifelong learners, and I never really expected to be in education, right? But somehow this has taken on a life of its own with our group Eurekas. And now that's ex extending into other aspects of science. And so I ver very much feel, as artists, we're still about science literacy. But we're doing it through the lens of art and culture. And I think it's not just about the student learner. It's about the adult learner. Because if you can get the adults in the room excited about open inquiry, transdisciplinary investigation, then that filters down to the youth in the room, too. And so we do everything from maker nights in Pinedale, Wyoming, with ranching communities, to boys and girls clubs, to teachers in LA. And so that network that you're talking about, I feel like this is really a national thing. And that was one of the questions I wrote for the group, was I feel like there's almost like a thought renaissance happening with this conversation. And I was curious if any of you guys experienced or thought the same, and if so, why? Like, why is there this renewed interest that's permeating all facets of society, education, artists, scientists, in, in working and thinking differently about this type of collaborative work? So I have an opinion on that, <laughs> which is based on 
a lot of conjecture and not a ton of facts. <laughs> and yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So what I would love is if there is a international historian of science in the room Ooh, to yeah. go do a deep literature dive. Um, so I have a transatlantic perspective, having spent the first half of my life and training in the UK and done a lot of work through Wellcome Trust and then moving to the United States. So Britain is about 15 years ahead of America in the institutional support that is provided for this kind of work, driven largely by the Wellcome Trust, which has then pressured the government in the UK to support analogous things. So, so I think that is the main driver. It's kind of come from one big player in the country. You know, the Wellcome Trust is the second largest nonprofit in the world after the Gates Foundation. So it's huge. So I, I think that's the driver. I'd be really curious to know if um, the reason the United States seems to be doing more of that is because like Kavli and the Sloan Foundation and recently the Simons Foundation and people like this are starting to like really push it out there and they're a good example. So I, I think that's one thing. I think there's also it's to do with kind of the, cult, the justification and the raison d'etre for scientific research. I think if you look at the justification in the United States for doing science, a lot of it is to do with it being an economic driver. And so the reason you might want to fund um, science communication or science literacy building has also got to be tied to that economic driver. Whereas in Europe, for example, debatably, like it's got more of a cultural raison d'etre. It's not kind of... It, quite as like nakedly capitalistic um, and that means that it's easier to translate it into an artistic format. So that's my really like not that well informed but not totally ignorant opinion. I'd, I'd love it if someone actually had done a literature review or a sociological study of this and they can refine or correct me. <laughs> the mic so uh, all of our live streamers can hear us. Um, we'd love to open it up to the audience for questions now. We have a lot of time for questions if uh, whoever wants to be the brave first person. Um, <laughs> got a volunteer over here. All right. Uh, just come up to the mic and uh, state your question clearly and loudly. Um, this was such an interesting panel. I, I love the idea we kind of touched upon, and I wanted to emphasize it now, the, the collaboration of organizations who are doing art science collaboration work. It's very interesting, and I think we should revisit it at some point this weekend. So yes, open to questions now. And maybe people could say who they are if they want to. That's a great idea. <laughs> Your name, who you are, something like that. Hi, I'm David Teeple, uh, a sculptor. I work with water and glass and light. I create these environments um, utilizing Descartes' law of refraction to create uh, phenomenological environments to to um, uh, work with the ideas of, of uh, the psychological, um, the psychology of perception, really, and, and what kind of experiences we have. Um, so I have an interest in water. And I'm working on teaching a class, uh, co-teaching my first class uh, this year um, at Hampshire College um, on watershed hydrology. So I'm not a watershed hydrologist. I'm not a scientist. I have a lot of interest in science. Um, but I was invited in to, 
two of the things that really hit it in this conversation for me are science literacy and transdisciplinarity. They're two very different things. One is how do we communicate ideas of science and one is how do we maybe use the processes and the language and the dialogue and the materials and of art and science and find the commonalities uh, to help each other you know, find more truths or more interesting elements. Um, so I want to just describe a little bit and then I will have a question. Um, so Chris, the professor asked me to come in and uh, af after the data was collected and visualized, helped visualize the data. And I said, let me come in in the beginning of the course and I'm going to, I want to show my work and my process and how I think and then I want to get the students to start thinking about how they're going to approach the experiment to go out and measure these two watersheds in the area. So I, that all happened and I said, why don't you go out there before you do anything and, and do some meditation or if you play the flute, take your flute out, dance, do some writing, do something, engage with the environment before you start collecting data. They did that and they came back and they brought some really interesting stuff back. One in particular, someone, this woman did these watercolors and they were gradients. And it was really critical for me to understand gradients and how, you know, the idea of sedimentation or uh, importance of information in gradients. Um, somebody uh, did a board game, <clears throat> which was fascinating. Somebody came in, two people dressed up in waders and like they were doing a camp, a camp lesson. Um, and then my, the, the, the third part of this is that I'm going to engage uh, by making a sculpture that articulates what I've seen uh, in what I've learned in this process. Um, and so uh, just two things that really stuck out. One is the, the stream distribution patterns. Uh, so I'm going to take those patterns and sandblast them onto glass and then do this other, this other element to it using glass. Um, and then when I talked to Chris, about, uh, she's a professor, when I asked her about this, what, what are the critical things? Or what are you trying to do? Or how are you, what are you really trying to get the students to do? She said, I want them to understand flow and I want them to understand what's going on with water. And I'm asking them to go into the environment and before they collect data, data have experienced the environment. Um, which is a different way than a lot of scientists would say, you know, go in and collect the data. We want to, uh, turbidity and we want the flow rates and we want the sedimentation and the plant life and all these different things and that's really critical information. So to the question, um, can you articulate, you and the group, articulate what motivates you to want to merge science and art? So the, the artists, why, why do you want to work with scientists and the scientists, why do you want to work with artists? Are you looking for just science literacy or are you looking to change the dynamic of um, scientific process and questioning at its core? Um, I think it's really interesting, uh, your point about going into an environment and experiencing it and viewing it at first. Um, so as a, um, as a scientist, how I ended up coming up with my 
my dissertation project was because I was experiencing the the beach environment, you know, doing a tagging study with sea turtles walking walking up and down and having that experience and then coming up with a question um, uh, about it. So I, I feel like um, for a lot of the environmental sciences and the natural sciences, there's like that naturalist history in there that, that does get at, at some of, of, of what you were, were talking about. So that's science hat. Um, as, a, <laughs> as a dancer, um, I am looking to interface with other scientists to explore and think about what their, what their research is and what does that look like um, on the body in, in sort of an, an abstract manner, but also looking at it in terms of how can we use the body as a vehicle for learning, like a, a kinesthetic learner. So I feel like I kind of bounce back in, and, and forth between those, those two. So it's science communication, but it's also exploration um, of, of different environments and different um, uh, scientific uh, research. I, I was going to say that I started because I've always been interested in planets, but I've always been interested in art, too. And everybody always said growing up, I grew up in central Texas, so both were, like, weird, right? So they're like, you can't fuse those. But I started because I personally, as an artist, was interested in a subject, space science. As I started to explore that and working with these NASA scientists, I got so excited about the types of conversations that were emerging. I'm also a parent. And then when I started kind of translating those into the classroom and seeing how engaged learners could get about science if they looked at it through a different lens that they might not be able to address a technical topic with the confidence that they could unless they had that creative lens. I felt like it was so transformative that it actually, that collaboration transformed my identity as the artist. So instead of now, now instead of being interested in creating what I want to create, I'm interested in hearing the question that the learner has and then taking that back to engage with the scientists to try to come up with an experience that everybody can learn. So my role, I feel, as an artist has shifted to really being more interested in how I can facilitate the creativity and learning of others. So collaboration has completely changed my identity really as a being. It sounds, it sounds really good to me. I mean, I, I, I fully agree with this, uh, this concept of, of getting people into I try to do that with students sometimes, but um, it's, it's harder in Manhattan, but still possible. But get, getting them into the reality and experiencing it before too much knowledge comes in, because then it helps ask the questions that you're that you're talking about, Monica. You know, kind of formulate the questions that that deepen the the personal quest for the inquiry that could come later, rather than just expecting a lot of data is going to naturally do that. I, 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 it sounds great what you're doing. Thank you. I want to ask about situations in which, uh, which I haven't heard too much about here, 
where the artist's contribution has a real impact on the scientists. Mm. And I have two things in mind. One is um, visualizations that were done inside cave environments. Do, do you know what we're talking about here? Com computer sort of thing. And I know when those were done, maybe 20 years ago, of um, the beginning instance of the universe, there were things that were found in that visualization which suggested to scientists to look at various points at which they looked and actually found things that they had not otherwise found. So that the point about a different type of representation was helpful to them in exploring because it was a different way of exploring than the grids on which they were already exploring. And another... No. No, could you... In the, in the cave, a cave is like a virtual reality environment, and there used to be uh, where you go in, and it's like, um, um, yes, <laughs> you have to wear a headset, and it's a separate sort of kind of room. And this was like a long ago when you, I mean, now they're more sophisticated than they were. But some of the very early uses of these, the first one was at the University of Illinois, Champaign. Um, so what do you do with them? And some uh, scientific visualizations is the beginning of that kind of practice as well, was using some of the um, <clears throat> data around how do you envision the beginning of the universe as it was being told, the story that was being told by physics at that time. And, the and so the assumptions that she was making as a graphic artist to put this up were different than the ones that they were using, but she was obviously using their data. And what would happen is that what would, the visualization that was put up had things in it that weren't directly obvious in their data and led them to go look for things that they hadn't looked at before, and they then did find them. So that's what I'm talking about. And another example is uh, Diana Tamina at Cornell, who uh, used um, crochet to make hyperbolic forms mm -hmm that were not uh, uh, possible to, for instance, make on a computer for reasons that David Hilbert explained. And so this is, um, she has an entire project now with people who are doing, making fake coral reefs, mm -hmm. sort of, do you know, by this kind of crocheting procedure, yes. right? So again, this is a way of um, something, somebody coming in with that. Um, she's also a mathematician, right? But the, the, this particular thing that she's doing is making this crochet, which is useful to mathematicians who had not actually envisioned this particular kind of shape before, which they were now able to grasp in a material way. And people who aren't mathematicians are able to grasp in a non-mathematical way. So um, I think that it's not just sci you know, somebody coming in to serve scientific literacy, like you tell me what you know and I'll it up for you, right? Um, I think that there's also the point about there's different ways of knowing things that people can bring forward that actually has an impact on scientific knowledge itself. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you. Yeah. No, there's, there's another example, and I'm blanking on who does this, but there are a couple of TED Talks um, where uh, dancers are given... Uh, instructions where they're able to, it's like um, modeling um, of, of molecules. So these, you can only do this, you can only do that, and then the dancers interact, 
and the scientists are able to much more quickly see what would happen in given situations. And so it happens at a faster rate than if they were to then have to go back and, and do the computer programming. So they can work on things quicker and then you know, create the, the longer um, mathematical models that, that happen. So there, there are definitely some other good examples of that as well. I think kind of to, to provide a slightly conceptual framework the, the literature that I'm kind of familiar with would kind of s cite the benefit of art as a way of knowing um, in terms of its benefits to driving scientific research forward. And so I'm kind of thinking of the kind of framework that John Dewey put forward in terms of the benefits of an artistic education. There's a good conference proceeding it came out of the Exploratorium a few years ago called Artists A Way of Knowing by Semper, Bevan, and McDougall that kind of touches on some of these good things. And I think David Root Bernstein is, there's a review paper that a load of people on the Seed Network are pulling together now that I think has a lot of good examples, but I've not actually seen it. But I think that's like a good conceptual framework to think about yeah. these kind of things. But I Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say I have a, a fun little antidote, not to go back to IO, but um, so we were working with NASA scientists to develop this kind of curriculum uh, where you use the elements of art, line, shape, color, value, texture, the basic elements of art to analyze and understand geologic stories on planets and moons. And I was working with this IO scientist and we were working with a group of learners and these learners were working on pieces that kept referencing some shapes that were very interesting compositionally. And she looked at it, the scientist, and said, wow, why do they keep drawing that? I'm like, well, look at the composition. It's very interesting compositionally. She said, hmm. that's a region we don't study because it's not hot. So Io's covered in volcanoes. The scientists are studying the regions that are hot, but the composition that was interested to the artists, students in the room, that was not hot, but then she's like, wow, we should look at that closer because the layers were actually very interesting in terms of understanding geologic time and the history of lava flows on the planet. It just wasn't something that was active yeah. currently. So using the observational skills through the drawing process, having artists and the scientists in the room, I felt that that was a really interesting place where both were informing each other equally at that moment in time. So I just wanted to add that, I mean, these are really beautiful, concrete examples of how art can influence science, but that I think it's important for us to remember and appreciate the, the less concrete examples, right? That science in particular can work very, very slowly, and the dialogue between a scientist and an artist, and a and the infusion of a different way of thinking about a set of questions or a set of problems is really, really profound. You, can, you may not immediately be able to put concrete language around what that resulted in, but I think that we should not forget that these are happening in everything that we're all doing. Great question. It kind of preempted a little bit of what I was going to ask. But um, I love this idea that got brought up earlier, 
um, about a taxonomy of different types of collaborations. And I found it very conceptually helpful, especially because this conference is going to continue into the weekend and have more discussions. So uh, as far as I understand it, the taxonomy that's kind of been presented today by all the people doing actual collaborations seems to be one that the scientist helps in a oh sorry that the artist in a sense helps to promote some sort of scientific idea maybe like a movie like Inconvenient Truth would be a bit of a, a extremely you know blunt example of that but to some degree that happens or alternatively maybe this, the artist as a critic to uh, some scientific idea or process seems also like a legitimate form of of sci art to me at least and. Um, and then third, possibly the idea of almost an artistic project like the Interstellar Travel Bureau, which in a sense like a pop-up interactive experience is a little bit more on the artistic side, but it's drawing very much from science. And then the fourth, which was just brought up, which is exactly what I was going to ask about, which is when the scientist, it's almost like um, science Ford instead of art Ford, and the scientist gets something out of this artistic collaboration, maybe noticing something new or having their thinking changed. And I just wanted to ask two things, one of which was this taxonomy that I've kind of walked away from from this conversation, um, does everyone kind of, uh, does those categories make sense to people as possible modes to interpret what we mean by sci-art? And then two, are there any extra categories that you can think of, I, it might be a little bit of a, of a reach, uh, but I just wanted to kind of see what your opinion of, of that was, given that this is kind of what I've taken away from this and what I'm going to be thinking about as people continue to present and talk about SciArt over the next few days. Well, yeah, since I sort of started off with this as the typology guy, um, I, yeah, I, when I was following the conversations and I didn't keep bringing up other examples of classes of, of collaborations, but I would have come up with the four that you just had. The third about the, um, uh, w which Mark and Jamie brought up with these, uh, um, the Intergalactic Club, and I, I, sorry, I just forgot your title. The, the Superhero Clubhouse. The Superhero Clubhouse. Uh, I guess, I, yeah, they, even though you said they were, in a way, started with art, I, I almost saw them as, st as starting with life or, or something about um, engaging people in a holistic way about issues of life, almost, almost ethics and, and uh, uh, a transdisciplinary mind that was maybe neither science nor art. Maybe I would put it a little bit, as you framed it, on the, uh, more toward the art side, but, but almost um, uh, a, a goal for, for, for Doing scenarios about life, expanding people, a consciousness expansion, maybe more, more, more broadly construed. And then the fourth one, I would say, yes, you framed it well as the artistic mind as having uh, new insights. I and mean, I agree that science has to do scientists have to do that themselves. Uh, but but some the idea of multiple minds thinking in patterns in different ways. So I would have I, I I would say you're saying four. Whether there's more, I don't know. I don't see it at this point. But I'm I'm definitely open to it. But I I think that's really great that you saw the four that I that I saw also so far. <laughs> I'd like to just add a little bit on to your fourth category, which I think is really good. But I think we should not just think about 
that the collaborations as an artist. It can be any member of the community. It can be anyone who comes to a scientist with something. And I just want to throw an example out, which is yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to do this film, this short film about this lab in Nova Scotia, uh, led by this awesome scientist named Max Laboron, and she has, it's an ocean plastics lab. And she, what she does is she actually begins the process of hypothesis creation with a community meeting in the town where the lab is and sort of gives her like rough presentation of what she is interested in, what, what they can do in the lab, and then they just have an open hypothesis generation session. And it's super engaged in the community, and what, what, part of the thing that's come out of it is they've created these little trawls that can go behind people's fishing boats that can collect plastic, and then they can, you, each person who has a boat can do their own experiments at home and feed data back into the lab. But, all of that, all, like all those interests and, and those kind of experiments come from the community members. And I just think that's such a great model moving forward. It both gets scientists out of their silo a little bit. And it, to Shane's point earlier about like how do we have a bigger impact above and beyond meetings and, and ivory tower collaborations, it's that stuff. It's like, it's like getting scientists to, to, to come out into the, into the community a little bit more. And also going to them and bringing, the, bringing it to them. But I just love what, what they're doing up there. I mean, I would add to that a little bit and say, and I don't know if this is a different category or a nuance of a category, but that um, I think another really important thing for this group to be thinking about and talking about is how do we reach people we're not currently reaching, right? Because, I mean, I'll just speak for a LIGO project. We've amassed a really wonderful community of people, but I think to some degree we're speaking to the choir. And how do you start to reach beyond that group of people? And that, I do think in a way, is a special category because potentially we have to work or think or at least talk a little bit differently about what we're doing in order to engage some people that we're not currently engaging. For example, the word transdisciplinary, there are some people that that word is just going to lose immediately. There are a lot of people that that word is going to lose immediately. So. All right. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, my name is Nick. I'm a, a scientist most of the time. Um, I'm an artist very rarely. Um, and I've done a little bit of art science collaboration. Um, I thought it was a really interesting discussion, but um, something that struck me about it is also something that struck me about my interactions with the art community and um, especially the interactions between scientists and artists is that uh, a large majority of them are very uh, science focused. So the subject of the whole thing is science. Whether it's science communication or the artists bringing some observation that helps the scientist understand things, it's the science that we're trying to understand, or the, somehow the, the question of the universe that is the science that we're trying to understand. Rarely is, do we see science doing science of art and trying to use science to understand art. Now, this does happen, but it's a lot rarer than art trying to serve science. And I wonder why, if you have any opinions on why that is. I think Mark touched on it a little bit with the inequality between funding, but also I think maybe the, 
the science of art is sometimes seen as a little bit frivolous in science. Like, you know, it's not a serious question that scientists are asking. So I wonder if you have any kind of opinions on that. Maybe it's like a fifth category to your taxonomy. <laughs> I can make an empirical observation because I work with and know lots of people who work in conservation science. So this chemistry that is looking at art preservation, so fine art. This is not a well-respected or well-funded subfield of chemistry and spectroscopy. Um, for whatever reason, I don't understand. But that, it is an empirically true statement. This is not something where there is a ton of money and a ton of respect heading. I, I would also kind of, kind of caveat it and, and push back against this conception that like science doesn't do a lot of job in art. I think it's really easy to lose sight of our place in history um, when we forget that many of the kind of tools we take to be everyday run-of-the-mill things were in fact 20, 30, 50 years ago cutting-edge science and they've now been so democratized and mass-marketed that we don't even realize that this is fundamentally like a scientific product. It's probably more technological now. And these are completely ubiquitous. Like the Met is digitizing its entire collection. Like Google is transcribing every work of literature onto the web. And I know it's, it's somewhat semantics, but you know, you could argue that like science is doing a really good job of like disseminating and promoting art. It just doesn't sit within the academies in the way it does it now. No, just a thought. Yeah, to comment on that, I guess it's not cutting edge anymore, so it's not, you know, it's become engineering, not science. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, that's why I said maybe it's semantics. I, don't I guess know. Just, just a quick response is to some degree, science as a process is, is more confined in a certain way than art. But in general, I, I would class your question under. Uh, cognitive science. I mean, it, you know, is it's asking, asking how people think and why they think and how they respond, and 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 that is being investigated in different ways. Obviously, in a big, big way. But I, I know it was a year or two ago where there was some artificial intelligence is also investigating this, like what makes people respond in certain ways, and there was some pop song that was created by a computer and in a way that I don't know there's a negative side to that there's a side that, that, that scares me when the, the human mind is is understood in that way and the the artistic process is well what, it depends on what kind of art you're talking about but in this case it was a song that contains um, properties to it that they think will be popular to the mind and I don't know whether that fits with your question at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think music is the one is one of the areas where this is most prevalent. Yeah, okay. Scientific understanding of music, but it is so. It seems that, and it's not that this doesn't happen. It just seems very one. It's very unequal, right? There is this imbalance, and I wonder if it's to do with funding yeah. or to do with the lack of respect for those kind of fields I of science. I think it's hard to Maybe define creativity. Hard yeah, science or something like that. yeah, I mean, another reason might simply be that, in a way, it's the opposite of what it feels like, that the artists are actually more evolved and have already come to the table. And part of the discussion is how to get the scientists to the table. And therefore, there may be a little bit of a focus on the science. 
Is, I just want to add one more thing from like the artist's perspective. You know, as an artist, you have a subject, right? And so many artists are interested in the subject of science. And that subject in art can be so varied, whereas often in science, you're an expert, you're a master in a certain field or question, so you don't necessarily have the breadth in your starting point. One example would be uh, Eric Kandel, who wrote a book about uh, Mark Rothko and trying to understand from a uh, neuroscientist perspective what makes Rothko art. So, so it is. It is happening. I mean, you're, yeah, you're saying it. Maybe it's not happening as a formal way, but yeah. So I'm, I'm happy with that as another category uh, uh, that, that needs to be expanded more, maybe more consciously, to be more conscious. Just really quickly, I, from my perspective, and I might just be too caught up in it. And I, I write all about neuroaesthetics on my website, The Beautiful Brain, and I've been, and and I just feel like it is happening a lot. And there's like the Max Planck Empire, for example, for example, just created the Max Planck. Institute of Empirical Science, of Empirical Aesthetics, and it's all about that. And there, there's kind of, there, I went to the International Association of Empirical Aesthetics meeting here at Hunter College a couple of years, like th these are big bodies that are only studying what happens when you look at a painting. What and, and it really is going on, but it's, it's, ah, it's, it's a lot of it rubs artists the wrong way, uh, for good reason. Mm -hmm. but, there is an issue of, of the artist being having an intuitive understanding of what they were they're already doing. Um, this is a longer conversation. <laughs> I just said there is a lot of work out there. Yeah, yeah. So if, if I could just add to that a little bit, and I, I am talking tomorrow. Sorry, um, but there is actually a science to the arts. Um, and I think oftentimes that's overlooked, and there is a lot of work being done on aesthetic science, but there's also a lot being done on the neuroscience of what happens in the brain when you're making stuff. Um, even looking at when did civilization really take off um, with knowledge, and there's a professor, and I forget what university, that's actually having people flint knives um, and spears and seeing what is happening because there was a point in human civilization where the use of simple machines and building these things actually led to more knowledge. Um, and I think oftentimes what's happening, at least in this country, is that we look at art in many ways as vocational skills. And if you look at metallurgy or ceramics or chemistry, um, you know, that there are really hard sciences there. How do you build? How do you engineer? Typically, the artists were the ones that were doing that. A um, hundred years ago, we really started dividing up disciplines. And so I think that was kind of the thought behind this whole weekend, too. Um, and some of you talked about the transdisciplinary nature. But in many ways, people have become so specialized in their fields that they're not looking at the bigger picture. And, I'm not going to say scientists in general because I, I would say that what we have is we, we have a problem with how we value knowledge and things in this country. And so it's not necessarily the scientists, but it's culture as a whole um, places things at different levels. And so I, I would like to think that it's more about our values. I'd second that. Um, my name is Cynthia Panucci, and 30 years ago I started an organization called Art and Science Collaborations. So um, I think we have to look at the fact that art education in this country is valued 
nil. It's just not funded. So that means that the scientists don't have an appreciation. The scientists to be, the ones that are in control now, don't have an appreciation of the arts or what an artist can bring to the table. They don't know anything about it. They don't know how to craft, engineer, visualize. I mean, some of them do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is an exception. But um, so we, we have to look at the fact that funding, the NEA funding is it's, it's just pitiful. I mean, in the UK, it's the lottery that funds the, the Arts Council. I mean, forever. That's why they can do these wonderful collaborations and the Wellcome Trust, you know, the most highly funded uh, medical institution in the world. Yeah, they're way ahead of us and Australia is catching up really nicely. Um, so, so education, if it doesn't come fundamentally and the parents don't value that, I, I happen to think after school programs are an incredible place because the structure of the classroom is impossible to do project learning. And I think that's where art and science has to be, um, to be uh, appreciated and, and to bring the science alive in ways that the scientists normally don't do. So, but, but after, after school programs are, everything is so structured. So it's, it's got to be a passion of yours on the part of the artist. And the scientist has got to love art as well. I mean, I've, I've traveled all over the world, and I can't tell you how many times I'll be sitting down on a bench in a city I don't know, and there'll be a woman sitting there, and yeah, we're talking. Yeah, she's an artist. Yeah, and her husband is a scientist. I mean, I could probably write a book about this. There is this natural c connection. It's very, very interesting. Um, it's really there, and I think the reason why it's happening, these collaborations are happening more and more, more projects like LIGO, uh, LIGO um, are happening, I get it through my email, I mean practically once a month I hear about new artists and scientists don't need institutions or organizations anymore. They need to be passionate about the science they're involved in and, and respect and enjoy art. And then if it takes 10 years to form a personal relationship over this concept that they want to bring about through a transdisciplinary collaboration, well, you just work on it and you just do it. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, anyway. Um, but I wanted to say that um, I think digital tools um, there are more children born digital. Many of us are older, so we weren't born digital. But I think it has been a big enabler. So scientists like um, Tyler Voke, if I was doing a project, I could find his email, and I know his books, and I, I can you know, email him and ask him a question. So that kind of accessibility to scientists was never around. <laughs> in the olden days, unless you were there personally going to the university. Um, but it's there today. And, but you've got to build, as an artist, a body of work that people, that's not so obtuse that the general public and that 
people can really understand and appreciate it, and that that scientist is going to really get into, you know, and, and want to work with you. So that mutual respect has totally got to be there, and that takes time. You can't put a graduate student together with a scientist and expect that, um, you know, anyway. I'm a little off the topic. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments, Cynthia. I feel like you touched upon a lot of the things that we talked about tonight, especially what makes for a good collaboration. Definitely um, dedication, passion. Um, our evening is over. It went really fast. Um, thank you guys so much for the panel tonight. We are starting at 9.30 tomorrow. The doors are going to open at 9. Um, so come in with your coffee, and uh, I look forward to seeing you all tomorrow.